Okay, we are recording. <laughs> Good. So, in terms of what we discussed, uh, do you think we could? I know there are some concepts from a newer that you wanted to discuss, and I also have a random word generator up on my screen. <laughs> so what we could do is we could generate some random words and then think about the intersection between those words or topics with some of the concepts that you want to explore, that we want to explore together on a new earth. One possible approach, what do you think? Sure, uh, but what is the of this conversation? I guess it's to, the way, the way I was thinking about it from what we discussed on WhatsApp was getting into some of the, the nooks and crannies of, of the analysis within a new earth and thinking about some of the particular concepts there, giving them a bit more depth and thinking about how they apply to certain situations. And I think just having a exploratory conversation around some of those themes and, and seeing where it goes. Because I think for, for me, when I'm discussing the book or discussing some of the insights in it, uh, even, for, even just for my own use, as well as discussing with others, it requires a little bit of extra thought to some extent which is almost ironic, kind of extra thought in the context of a new earth and the power of now. But that's that's where I'm coming from. Just uh, the the experience of, of living it and um, where that can where that can go and and how that can be used in different ways or perceived in different ways. I've already been implementing lots of things from the book since I read it, since it kind of blew my mind open. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, and so more and more recently, especially when you are in like close contact with uh, someone who, who, you know, I think you're kind of intellectually on the same kind of page. You might not agree on every issue, but if there's, if there's kind of that space to, to listen and to take things on board and to like mull it over in your mind, uh, I think there's there's room to acknowledge different deep truths within you. And when it comes to it, all these concepts about the ego, I've been exploring all this for myself and then kind of going into conversations with close friends. And uh, initially you get different reactions, like very typical kind of egoic reactions and also intellectually blocking reactions. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting what I've been going through. So, uh, yeah. Why don't we start with that? Why don't we start with the, the first time you read it, perhaps? And oh, I don't remember that. Huh? <laughs> I don't remember much uh, of, like, what I took from the book initially. It's more like I kind of read through it and some concepts really stood out. Um, like, okay, let's go through those then. So what, what do you think you, you've taken away from it? since whenever it was you read it and whatever exactly you experienced yeah. when you read it, what are those main concepts that have stuck with you and maybe given you a different way of approaching life? Yeah, well, uh, after much, um, it's, like, it's like you're trying to put very kind of meaningful and impactful concepts into a kind of language that you understand. And then it's a process of, you know, watching it for yourself 
and then you know kind of controlling it to your preference so this whole thing about the ego let's just start with the semantics of of mm-hmm. the word ego you know that's usually where i kind of start when i have conversations with other people you know i try and get that out the way and make it as clear as possible so i can move on because if people are still think when you look up the word ego in the dictionary there just there are and they're all true but you need to establish which variation you're actually trying to use and then be on the same page so with ego most people think it's meaning the kind of uh inflated self-esteem it's an exaggerated sense of pride you know that kind of you know synonymous with maybe um arrogance you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and being condescending. It's like an inflated ego. It's a big self-esteem. Yeah, you're really proud of yourself, or overly so. Um, that's not what I am meaning when I use the word ego, or from uh, A New Earth, from reading that book. Mm-hmm. I want to use more in a very comprehensive way. Um, when you establish that it's just the identity of self. And then it's like, well, people are like, what do you mean, the identity of self? And then it's it's a process of trying to identify that. So anyway, once you kind of identify that, that the, your identity is comprised of everything that you think is you, but then once you get it all down and you've acknowledged, okay, it's, you know, my reputation, it's what I think of me, it's what others think of me, it's my job, it's what I do, it's what I like, it's how I respond. And, you know, and then once you've got all that out the way and you go, okay, this, I think this uh, is my ego. Let's say this is my identity, ergo, this is my ego. Um, and you go, good, that's me. But then the real kind of... Uh, mind melting mind twisting stuff happens when you start to go okay well imagine that is like a barrier around you you know and that this barrier kind of protects the more vulnerable you which let's say for uh for the sake of argument is formless let's say form is pretty much attached to this ego this ego is all about defending this identity but the formless you is is inside um by this you know protected by the shell of an ego and when we go from day to day and when we interact with people and we are having conversations and we're discussing um you know where we lie in terms of like you know where we sit on the fence what our perspectives are especially when it comes to reactions if someone says oh i think you're a bit nasty you know already your ego will react to that not so much the formless you so it's all like it's all this it's in this world where you're trying to get your head around the concept that so much of what you think is you is actually parts components of your ego and Mm -hmm. then once you then establish that and once you're able to watch that, then effectively you're watching what you thought was you. But then if you're watching you, 
then who's the watcher? So that's the whole concept. And then it gets deeper still. And then, then you're able to separate your ego from yourself. And then you're able to watch all the interesting defense and attack mechanisms of your ego and how they impact your very perceptions of reality. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. uh, Just on the definition of the ego, I completely resonate with that. And and that's one of the challenges of conveying some of the the concepts of the book is like with yourself, I, I was really captured by the, 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 the chapters on, on, on ego and the way that he had defined it in the broadest sense of the word, the word, not just from a kind of Freudian perspective, or as you said, like a bombastic or vain or arrogant type of character. Mm. But actually, the, the way that he defines it, which is, which is actually in some ways a lot more subtle than that, it's not just the overtly extrovert form of, of, of um, like false confidence or hubris, but actually... Uh, something which could just be the other side of it, which is the voice that says, I, I'm not worth anything, that I, you know, that I'm a loser, that I'm, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, that, that counterpoint to the other narratives in the head that say, oh, I'm great, I'm the best, I'm better than someone else, which is really just a guise for that that prior voice that I described, which is that feeling or the ego's feeling of insecurity and that it's actually not enough. Um, so it's just interesting that that you mentioned that because I think that uh, that that that's a really important point in getting further into the concept of the ego as he just describes it and getting the most out of then that being able to witness all of that dialogue within within you from from a point of presence. So yeah, I think the uh, that that broader definition of the ego that that, that you mentioned and the accessibility point as well of for me the the book and the fact that he's quite an intellectual person you can tell and it's kind of given in his background story as well i think packaging things up in a way which isn't too uh what's what's the word kind of too hippie-ish i guess in a way it's, it's quite well-grounded language and i think that also really helped me kind of engage with the with the book yeah so what's your thoughts on the, the the kind of going back to where you left off the the conceptualizing the ego and kind of those mm-hmm. core concepts which stuck with you and you got to the point of describing how you you were able to start witnessing your thoughts in particular how how profound if at all was was that uh, that recognition of yourself beyond the, the form. Uh, um, I think I knew pretty early on from reading the book that before I'd even started to do it myself, I kind of, once, once I wrapped my head around the concepts, um, I could already see the, like the implications, the, the tremendous implications of how it would transform the world if everyone was pretty much to just kind of take this on and practice. Um, watching themselves and watching their ego. I mean, I think, like with lots of things, um, like with all these uh, protests and movements of inequality, <clears throat> I think uh, it's with basics, which is kind of recognizing 
building it in the first place and talking about it and getting everyone on the same page. Um, mm. I feel like that is a f- big, massive, massive step. And, um, and especially in this, it's really useful to actually get everyone to just understand these concepts and talk about them and acknowledge that they exist. It's not just some wishy-washy, you know, spiritual speech. It's it needs to be more grounded in yeah, this is recognized as truth. It's not just a yeah, it's not just a, a fanciful kind of way of thinking. Because once you then understand that this is within each of us and that it's our own prerogative to address our own failings, um, it starts with just watching. So I realize the potential because it's actually at the root of everything that we do. Because even if you think about, okay, greed, you know, there's that saying greed is like the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil, whichever you want to look at it. Whether you internalize it and you go, it's a greed. So greed is like a sin and it's a it's a very bad thing. And if it's not kept in check, it will destroy you, it will overcome you and stuff like that. Mm. Or, or whether it's money. So you externalize it and you go, it's a thing. So I've got to be aware of money because it has a certain pool. Um, but if you if you don't if you don't um narrow it down to like any particular thing to be wary of if you instead understand that if your ego latches on to certain things whatever it is then that is where it starts to get a bit dangerous if it's not kept in check especially when you don't even know that your ego is just a part of you and not you and you don't need to keep defending it and attacking it to perpetuate its own legitimacy. You know, it's like it spans across everything. Um, power and lust and control and greed and just consuming and um, vanity and, you know, self-esteem. And it goes across lots and lots of things. And and I've been, I've been kind of. So this is all before just applying it to myself, but I've been looking at the world and seeing it through the lens of the concept of everyone having egos and how you can pretty much trace everything that's a bit ill with our society, with us, all the all the all the failings of mankind. You can pretty much attribute it to to aspects of the ego. Hmm. That's interesting you say that because there's also that element of, and I think this is why he's so well, well, well grounded in how he, how he communicates that the message is, is that it, it is grounded in truth and that experiential aspect of it is kind of what makes it true, or at least made it true for me is that I could, uh, I could, I could instantly realize that what he was saying and, and the way that I lived my life or, or, or went on to live my life after reading it were were all true from an experiential point of view and there was no faith required there was no metaphysics to it there was no religion to it Mm. um and and i think the value is uh, as you're saying there's there's that value in being able to see uh a a lot of the vices as we sometimes describe them in life 
and things like the seven deadly sins. And then there's, I, I think there's another element to that, which is what's really fascinating, which is the the, the formless uh, types of form, if you want to call them those, which are the, the non-physical forms to which we find attachment and to which we identify with to the point that we don't even realize that we've become a host to a particular parasite. Mm. And those those types of forms would be mental forms and thought forms or the pain body, which is a, the whole other topic, which is really interesting. But things which are not, because I think it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a good starting point for people, I think, to, and it's quite easy for people to, to start with, oh, yeah, materialism, that, that's not a very spiritual path, doesn't give us happiness. And so I think it's quite easy for, for, for individuals to get the concept of physical forms and how they can lead one astray and, and money doesn't give you happiness, uh, things like that, beyond a certain point. And, um, but, but the other ones which are really hard to grapple with are the idea that actually there's a lot more to it than that. You can not have any of those forms in your life or you can say that you're not led by them. Um, but you can still be completely consumed by an identity, uh, which is immaterial in some ways, but actually still a form, you know, like your role as a certain person in a certain company or in your family or uh, in terms of what, what you think about yourself, what you think about others, judgments that you make, things like that. So, um, yeah. And and, um, and as you were saying, in terms of it being the root of a lot of suffering it's definitely the root of suffering and and i think this is where it tees tees up quite nicely with some of the concepts of of the buddha uh, or the buddha's sayings and the idea of suffering there but um it obviously served a purpose at some point in time because it was part of our evolutionary story and this is something that what this is one of those great areas i think that eckhart tolle picks up on in his book a little bit kind of mentions the evolutionary journey and maybe there's an impulse of the universe to move away from the ego but i think at some point he does say yes actually we have an ego because it was probably useful at some point in terms of the evolution of of humanity but it's maybe uh, it's out of date so what are your thoughts on that in terms of the role that it might have played historically and whether it still has some particular use today uh i I mean, after reason, reading um, *Sapiens*, which is another great, fascinating book, but totally mm-hmm. in a different category, um, I'm of the opinion that I don't think that our species has actually moved along significantly in terms of like spiritual, emotional, you know, physical growth. Um, like we we've moved along a, a lot in terms of um being a civilization so with technology and sciences and you know infrastructure and stuff like that um but i don't think we've actually evolved much in terms of um bettering ourselves um i think we've just been a pretty much a runaway train you know, and it's it's come from this whole kind of competitive nature that we inherently have. Um, and when it comes to a concept of ego and its role, I think ego is still purposeful. It's st- I don't think it's redundant by any means. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's good. I, th- I think it just is. When we, part of the process is just to acknowledge it and to just be 
at peace with it um, and be wary of it so that we don't let it control us because it pretty much has become us. We have become our egos. And we are, for the most point, for the most part, we're oblivious to even that. You know, it's like the parasite then controlling the host and the host thinks that it's free, but it's not, it's not, it's just imprisoned. The, the parasite is, is taken over. And it's kind of like that, where the ego um, has become so much a part of us that it's, we, we don't see anything else. We don't, we don't run any other patterns than the dominant patterns of the ego. The ego pretty much precedes most other patterns that we run, mm. you know. I yeah. think with the exception of fight or flight patterns, you know, very, very uh, animalistic and kind of instinctive reactions. I think those are still, um, those still precede the ego. But in day-to-day day life, the ego pretty much precedes everything else because mm -hmm. you might logically, like intellectually, if you take out any threat, any kind of accusation, if you take away all context of how um, the ego might respond to judgment or whatever, if you take away all that and intellectually talk about a subject, which in itself is very difficult to do, um, then intellectually you'll probably have a different answer as to when you start injecting um, things that the ego will defend or attack with. Mm. Um, so, for example, what might, what might, what are you, what are you thinking in terms of what the ego might interject with? In, you, for example, is that for example in a conversation? Yeah, it can be all over the place. Mechanism. It, it's 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 absolutely everywhere. Um, mm. You know, I think we contradict ourselves all the time. But anyway, what I want to get to is. Yeah, to answer your question, I think the ego has, just like everything that has been part of our experience as humans, um, everything has had a purpose. And I think ego still has a purpose. Uh, I think it's still just a useful part of us. Um, but uh, just like with everything else, you know, everything should be in moderation. Um, and if something is not to your preference, then it's worth exploring. And I think that there's a lot of things in our society, in ourselves, that we're not um, at peace with, we are not content with, then um, it's worth exploring. And, and I've mm -hmm. kind of explored that. And I feel that ego is such a massive part of the root of all of the, the things that we want to resolve. And the fact that we haven't even... As a society, we haven't even acknowledged its existence and, you know, defined it for what it is. I mm. think that is a huge step in the right direction. Uh, right. And we go way deeper and way more exploratory from there. But I think that in itself, that encompasses the beginning of a new earth for me. Mm. I, think, I, I think that's exactly how... I would see it as well, and, and what Eckhart Tolle is probably trying to convey as well, which is 
and he uses the metaphor of it being a new a new earth a new kingdom a new era and the the way that the suffering has perpetuated pretty much cyclically i suppose in many ways because the ego then feeds the, the egos of the next generation and getting to that point now where we're actually I mean, some some already had these insights really early on in the ancient world and antiquity, and but but for the masses, uh, where we're at now, the ability for these kinds of types of insights to, and not just through the book. I mean, the book is just the medium for for for, for truths which are, which are already out there in certain philosophies and certain lines of inquiry and thinking and philosophy and, um, but uh, from from my perspective, the way that the timeline applies if you were to build a timeline from the book uh, of of where the ego appears and arises and evolves from what i see he, he refers to a time in which we were kind of one with nature you know that kind of pre-agricultural society stage where you had where religions were animistic and we were as as humans we were part of nature not not owning nature or governing nature but then at some point when the agricultural revolution took place and we started to settle down and we started to form hierarchies and and of course hierarchies still existed in some tribes in some ways but but hierarchies in terms of putting us ahead of other types of animals um, so that we effectively dominated them and i think that's where he's possibly saying that the ego ego comes in because it's at that point that we have that need to to dominate other animals to dominate other humans uh, to create civilizations that have stories and to argue that those stories are more legitimate than the stories of another tribe and that might makes right and therefore I'll hammer my story into, into your tribe by wiping you out and harrying your tribe and all that sort of thing. So, and then I think, as you say, now we're at that point where, and it's interesting you mentioned sapiens because I'm just finishing rereading Homo Deus and I think there is a lot of intersectionality between some of the concepts uh in in both books but but now we're at that point where we're opening up as a society more and, and realizing that to survive we have to cooperate and there's a whole idea in sapiens and uh, and uh, homo deus of the fact that we got as far as we did in terms of sophistication of, of civilization through cooperation the ability the unique ability of humans as animals to cooperate in large numbers yeah and it seems like we're constantly having to break down the boundaries of ego to cooperate further and to progress as, 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 a, as a global society. Because, you know, you get to a point where you've got one tribe versus another and you can say, well, our tribe is, is better or, or, or more right in some ways than another. And you can overcome the ego within a tribe and say, yeah, I'm going to love and put everyone foot, uh, first within our little tribal society. But then it takes a big step to then go beyond and then include the adjacent tribes and the adjacent societies. And we've now got to do that on a global scale. We've got to start being able to cooperate and not just try and dominate one another. And so it's a, it's a new leaf for a lot of people, I think. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's uh, I mean, obviously that's so tricky. Um, but I, I feel like before we even, it's it's like, um, you have to think about it in in chunks, in layers, almost in layers. It's like at the core, it's every individual, and then it goes, you know, 
the next cluster out, the next layer out. What's what's after the individual? It's like your closest loved ones, you know. And then and then the the, the layer after that, the the outer ring, and then the outer ring, and then the outer ring. So then it then gets bigger and bigger, and then it's, you know. A, a, a community and then into a um, a group of people and then you might segregate that into different belief systems and and then it's like regional and then it's national and it's international mm-hmm. but i think as long as every individual pretty much is on the same page with i with just the bare minimum of identifying what the ego is and be on the journey of kind of being in control of it yourself and just being able to talk about it on the same wavelength, you know, comes back down to um, the semantics of the word ego. I think the more that we have these kind of discussions, it's, it's going to then, you know, create movements. But if you're thinking, if you're going ahead and you're thinking about how we can, um, you know, coexist and how we can break down the layers of the ego in terms of uh, getting along with, you know, as you put it, like your neighbor's clan or stuff like that. If you talk about tribes, I think we're already jumping the gun because that is in realms of, you know, um, a, a collective decision to change or to adapt, um, ourselves as as a unit in order to coexist and i think that is going to be perpetuating the same kind of patterns that we have because i do feel that when when we're able to truly recognize the patterns that we run in our own egos then the natural kind of solutions that we come up with um the uh, it's very difficult to describe but i think that a lot of processes will become redundant and they will just dissolve when we Mm. are able to identify what's in our roots i think that a lot of our perceptions and a lot of our go-to solutions and a lot of our uh, the way yeah the way that we identify and the way that we perceive things will fundamentally change once we've gone through a generation or two of identifying the ego in ourselves each individual person and i think the more that we're able to create systems of education to get this word out and to actually keep practicing it everyone for themselves um, i think whatever comes from that fundamentally will be different will be the change that it, that we require to to evolve to move forward with ourselves but i think mm. try and jump the gun and think that we are geniuses already and that we have all the answers already but we haven't we if we fail to address the failings in ourselves or ego based pretty much um then we're just going to repeat the same patterns we're just going to mm. think we have a we have a smart angle, but no, I I think the intelligence, I think the wisdom will come from dissolving our own failings egoically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, there's, there's some there's some great stuff in that. I think 
two things that I pick up on what you just said. One, the idea of it's, it's almost it's a really beautiful thing that we don't have to go out there and try and change people's minds or or, or, or tell tell someone's ego that they're, they're dominated by their ego yeah. and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, the, the solution is so simple. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost magnificent. It's that 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 you focus on your level of consciousness, and then when you sum all of that up with everyone else doing that, then then change will naturally happen. And the idea that you can look after your own state of consciousness, also having um, flowing out from there to impact others in in a positive way, those that you reach out to, those that you're in contact with in your life, in your community, uh, and then making making waves in, in that sense. Um, and then the, the other thing I wanted to pick up on was, do you think that then that it's inevitable that uh, a new earth, if you want to call it that, w- will arise and that perhaps Toller is just remarking on, he's almost a social commentator on what is perhaps already happening or has been happening over the past, where, whenever you, wherever you want to start counting it, over the past hundreds of years, thousands of years, no. and he's remarking on this is the journey that we're on. Do you think that, it, that, that, that we're already some way along that journey and that it's inevitable that it will turn out for the best, if you like? No. So to, to your second point, uh, I, I don't think that it's inevitable. Uh, it, if by inevitable we're thinking of a timeline of as, as long as our species is surviving, you know, whether it's through um, this era or the next, um, I don't think it's really in the kind of short term inevitable. Um, because I, I mean, th- there are many things that I think is just a joke. Uh, and I don't mean haha joke, as in like it's ridiculous, it's preposterous that we are capable of so much better. Um, but we fail to see even the most kind of fundamental of truths within ourselves. I think that we're so used to thinking and seeing and reacting to the external world uh, for however much, like whatever you want to take that as, everything external. I think we really need to pay more credence to the internal world. The internal journey is the most important journey that we all need to make. And I don't see that happening, not nearly as much as we need it to at the rate that we need it to. So I don't think that it's inevitable, although I think it's crucial. I think it's it's paramount. I think it's of paramount importance that we do this for ourselves as a society, as a, a singular, you know, species on this planet, because we're godlike on this planet. Um, we have pretty mm-hmm. much ultimate control, um, but uh, we've been running rampant for you know many generations already, and. Um, we we are you know very very close to tipping the scales in dangerous levels on different fronts you know with climate change with politics with war um with the kind of 
um, military industrial complex with society in general, with inequality, with genders, with perceptions of lots of things. It just goes across the entire board. I don't mm. see enough positive signs to be comfortable to say that it's inevitable. Um, and what do you think about the trajectory? Is there a tra trajectory towards us becoming more conscious over the last however many years? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the reason I'm picking it up because there might be because the, 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 the way I see it is we can be quite it's it's easy to be quite myopic about these things and focus on say a one or five or ten year period in which things seem to be going downhill but wait, but if I look back and um, I read half of the first half of a book on a very long but probably too long in, in my view for by Stephen Pinker on the history of violence and it just really really ex explains very well how as a, as a species, we've become less and less violent over the years. And we've also enfranchised more and more people, you know, thinking about uh, the vote for women and the emphasis in the last 100, 200 years on human rights and, and, and equality and equitability and all of these nice, what would have been considered in, say, the 17th century, kind of fluffy things where in, from a kind of 17th century perspective or, or prior and to some extent today, you would have a different view in which there are enemies and there are people that don't deserve these things. Yeah. And you, you look after your nation, you look after number one, and there's a king at the top or a queen. Whereas I think I, I feel like today, with the, with the attention that there is to climate change, and there's a lot of lack of attention, but I think that we're, we're moving towards consensus on a number of issues, partly through things like the Declaration of Human Rights and partly through this embedded liberalism and all, all, all the other side of things in which we believe that humans are valuable and getting over those boundaries of, of, of saying not just these humans are valuable but all humans are valuable which is an incredible conversation to be having in this in this in the history of humanity i think yeah um personally i have a habit of uh and i and i think it's a kind of a hereditary thing it's been instilled in me. I'm never like happy enough <laughs> with progress uh, in myself and in the world around me, especially when I see the, the great potential in, um, you know, you see shining examples in whatever area. There are always people who are doing things better to my, to my definition of better. And so I go, well, why isn't everyone doing it better? Why isn't everyone being better? You know? um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There has been um, an incline in, in, our, in our general overall performance in different areas and everything that you mentioned. So yeah, we are getting, we are getting better. We are improving. And I think it's, it's um, something that's going to be a permanent shift of improvement. Mm. I just, I'm really on, I'm really trying to push forward uh, concepts that I feel are going to, mm, are going to stop patterns from perpetuating, as in negative patterns, what we perceive as negative patterns um, from perpetuating. Because um, I really do feel like it needs to be a multi-pronged, multi, multi -pronged, 
approach when it comes to like problem solving. So say, say um, climate change. Okay, so it's like well, if you attribute it to, um, if you say metaphorically we're damaging the planet, so then imagine that it's a wound, like the body has a wound. Okay, it's damaged. So it's not enough to just if it's a gaping wound, it's not enough to just put a plaster over it. It's not enough to just kind of stitch it up because what if it's infected? What if it gets infected? And what if whatever caused that wound will keep happening again? So you've got to do a multi-pronged approach, you know, do the immediate action to to kind of stem the bleeding, you know, so mm. that you don't hem so that there's an immediate reaction, um, do that. And then maybe before then, or at the same time, you've got to treat it for infection so that it doesn't spread, you know. Uh, it doesn't run away um, and get out of control. Um, but then there's a, an equally important action that needs to be done to kind of prevent it from happening. So you've got to kind of cure it as in from from happening ever again somewhere else. So you've got to establish, you know, what caused it and 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 sort that. So it's a multi-pronged approach, and that's the way I see how we need to tackle all of these issues that we're having in the world, in our world, in the human world, in our society, in ourselves. So we're on the trajectory with the kind of, um, I think, immediate responses. So we are bettering our quality of life. We're bettering our um, economy and our um, society. And we are aware of the damage that we're doing to the rest of the world. So we're trying to kind of, you know, stem the bleeding. We're trying to kind of heal that in terms of, you know, trying to kind of moderate our actions so that it doesn't get all crazy and that we don't cause an infection, so to speak. Um, but what I'm all about is I am aware that a lot of the things is all down to the ego. So unless we cure ourselves as individuals, every single person, they have their own ego and their ego is constantly at play. And if you let your ego... Um, govern your choices, your perspectives, your intellect, your choices, your reactions, everything. If you let that happen, then no matter what good you try and do in the external world, the patterns will perpetuate. So it's like that's why in this multi-pronged approach, I'm really focusing my attention on the curing us so that we prevent the patterns mm -hmm. from yeah, just yeah, absolutely. And all the other stuff. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense because it's the the root cause of the ego is where we need to get to, and and the root solution in that sense, as as you said, is 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 awareness and kind of consciousness, and that's there's there's an element of that in terms of okay, well, how do I get more people? <laughs> Should I want to get more people down that journey? I suppose in the sense that it will at, at the very least bring them contentment in their life if they're otherwise in the grip of the ego then by definition they're in the grip of dissatisfaction so there's that element of yeah you want to share 
the contentment and the, the the joy that can arise out of out of presence things like that but i suppose there's a there's a challenge in terms of if and how one should evangelize about it and how it can be effective um and in your experience have you struggled with that i know we discussed at the very beginning of the conversation just the stumbling block of even defining ego you let alone getting into a conversation with someone about how that applies and might apply to them because you know these things take time to sink in don't they and it, it takes time to build awareness and for some they're ready for that message and they can take it and they know exactly what you mean and, and even if they've not read the book and and for others they'll they'll, they'll live the rest of their lives without necessarily um, having that level of awareness to even engage in the conversation so has that been your experience to, to any extent oh, yeah. when speaking about this subject with others yeah um <clears throat> if it were easy we would have done it already you'd presume mm. um it's very very difficult um it's kind of in the lines of um you know the mis quoted Gandhi, I believe, it's like, you know, you be the change you wish to see kind of kind of thing. So I think we all need to do it in our in ourselves. But yeah, that initial challenge is doing it for yourself. And then how can you converse to other people, the closest people around you, um, without coming off as um, like a know-it-all or um, arrogant or misguided in your own beliefs, because if you don't see eye to eye, you're just going to dismiss, you know, your friends are going to dismiss your thoughts and they're going to be like, well, you know, all right, who have you been following? You know, what kind of cult have you gotten yourself into? Like, who have you been listening? <laughs> you know, they're going to immediately dismiss it because you, it's very difficult to kind of slowly ease into it. Um, but I feel like that's been my journey. I've eased into it for myself and I have eased into it with certain, you know, really close friends of mine around me. Um, because when it, it, it kind of, it's in, it's involved in every aspect of our lives, um, especially socially. Um, I feel it's very akin to, uh, to 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 a, a good kind of psychotherapist or uh, a good kind of psychoanalytical um, practice where you look at some kind of context in your life, something that you're displeased with, either either within yourself, which is most likely um, ignored, it's usually externalized. You usually go, well, I have hurt. And I am displeased with um, my family, my friends, my job, my whatever, my situation, my finances, my skills, my looks. You know, everything is externalized, basically. Um, and um, it's very difficult to actually break things down and to realize that it's you. You know, everything is about your ego and how you perceive yourself within this world um, and I've, I've successfully had conversations with about this with myself for myself and therefore I've had successfully talked about this with other people yeah and um, it's one of those things that you 
you constantly have to just keep stepping back, taking a deep breath and kind of collecting yourself. And you kind of have to reset over and over and over because the ego is so much of an intrinsic part of you that you need to just always be aware that it takes over even when you think that you've kind of overcome uh, a certain difficulty and you think, oh, I've got this. I'm aware of what the ego is. I, I know it. And then, and then before, you, before, before you realize, you go, oh, oh, no, wait, actually, that's the ego right there. It just showed up again. And I thought I had it under control. You know, So it's a constant, constant practice. And it's ever evolving. It's ever changing. I feel like the way our brains make excuses for ourselves, you know, we always make excuses for inaction or um, displeasure. Um, it's the same that the ego always finds ways to kind of exist. It needs to stay legitimate all the time. It's quite pervasive. So, um, mm. yeah, I, I don't know where I was quite going with that, but, uh, no, that's great. And, and and I think it answers the question as well in terms of do we really need to even think about this in terms of something that needs to, like a good message that needs to be spread or evangelizing? Or do we really need to sit down with people and say, right, I want to have a conversation now because this is going to change your life. Well, instead, it's really about, as you said, it just keeps coming down to taking care of your own consciousness. And then that consciousness drives your actions and your actions are what speak louder than your words. And that's where the influence is. And so it's not about uh, a particular format or mode, especially for some people it might, they, they might want to have that conversation and they might want to have an intellectual academic conversation about it, or maybe they're already religious or they're spiritual or they're just interested in evolutionary biology and the mechanics of the, of the ego from a kind of behavioral science perspective and things like that. So I, I think that's that's what it comes down to. And um, and then, as you said, in terms of there are some parts of which are hard to address because they're so deeply embedded, some habits of behavior, um, which, and I think this would be really interesting to explore maybe on, on a, in another conversation, but yeah. I think it links into the pain body and, and, and those kinds of emotional responses, which don't necessarily have a, a voice attached to them so so you can be witnessing the voice witnessing the thought forms um and they may not be there but you could be on stage or you could be in front of a large audience and your hands trembling or your voice sounds nervous and you're not thinking anything but it could you might have an emotional response or maybe you go back to a childhood experience or or you have certain patterns of behavior with uh, family or friends from 20 years ago that became embedded because of experiences back then. And I think that's a whole other area which is really interesting to explore, which is uh, giving voice to those old messages that probably were there in your head at some point, um, maybe during childhood, but then just get compressed and embedded deep down so that now when, you, when you're in that situation, for example, when someone's trying to start an argument with you over something that you really matters to you, then without even thinking about it, you can your heart might start beating faster and uh, you might start to feel agitated. And um, so, so yeah, I think taking care of your own consciousness, like you said, is key. And then that can be really hard when you're provoked or triggered because mm. of certain experiences in the past. Yeah. Yeah. 
I feel like um, this whole talking point, this whole concept of the ego should be a strong, strong um, accompaniment to psychotherapy. I think it's so important because I've, I've done that for myself. You know, I've gone on my own journey and I will never stop on this journey. You know, once I read the book about a new earth, I was like, okay, this is a concept. That's profound. Holy crap. It's everywhere. Holy shit. This is, this is nuts. <laughs> um, um, and then I became the watcher of myself and I'll never stop. So, and I, and I think it's so closely important importantly linked to psychotherapy because this is the area that um, is very useful. There's a lot of value. We are drawn to it when it comes to self-development, when it comes to overcoming your greatest challenges and your greatest like um, difficulties. Um, I've done it for myself. I'll keep doing it for myself. I've helped talk about it with others and try to identify like what's really going on to stop patterns from repeating and then to heal and give give opportunity for you to actually just sit in stillness you know in in the in the truth of yourself you know accepting that you are triggered in certain instances and that's a good clue that's an amazing clue like we need to um be more tuned to how our natural body and our emotions and all of our physiology, everything reacts to certain moments. Um, we, we should use those triggers as just like, oh, there's a trigger. If you're conscious enough to notice it, you, you just put a little, little pin in that. You put a pin in it and you go, in this moment, I'm going to try and just do nothing but just be conscious that that trigger happened and whatever triggered it, that needs attention. Hmm. And I'll right. in the pattern of just doing that. Right. And then get deeper and deeper. But that is a like a crucial, crucial um, habit. I think practice that everyone needs to start doing for themselves um, because you will learn so much about yourself. And so outside of a new earth, outside, of conversations of ego if you just go in a very simple way if you just tell uh, people to just look out for that you know mm -hmm. then they're not able to instantly reject you on a on a on a concept that sounds too wishy-washy for them you know um if you go if you say look if you if you find that you know, your emotions are getting the best of you sometimes. If you find that you're annoyed or that you, you're feeling down or you, you get, you know, however you react, if you're confused about what's going on, just kind of advocate the practice of knowing when they get triggered. And this could be any emotional response or, or, or mental response, physical response. But just any time they get triggered, just put a pin in that. Remember it. Remember how you felt. Remember what triggered you and just let that be because later on you're going to come back to that over and over and over because this trigger is still there and it will always be there for you until you resolve the issue behind it. Mm -hmm. and, and through that, it's like a psychotherapeutic 
pattern because through that you will inevitably start talking about deeper topics and at that point you're listening at that point you care at that point you're invested because you realize that there's something wrong that you realize you were triggered that you realize that there's something deeper behind it and then it's like then you're opened up to you know going okay so what are the answers what's really going on mm, yeah absolutely and and i haven't thought of it like that but it is kind of a a diy psychotherapy if you like getting psychotherapy on the cheap uh, maybe and there might be psychotherapists that completely disagree with it. and i'm sure there are worlds apart in in many ways but but they probably have some common ground in terms of drawing out those experiences that as you say might make us annoyed and i think it's really it, it's a really interesting uh, experiment or exercise to when you are annoyed by something you know maybe someone's taking ages in a shop and and uh, while they're queuing and you're behind them or someone gets in your way for whatever reason physically or otherwise or you're in a conversation and, and you really want to make your point and it really matters to you <laughs> you make your point and all of that sort of stuff i think it's, yeah i think it's great just to, to 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 think for me i always think okay well why is it that it matters to me so much or why am i getting annoyed and, and of course a superficial answer would be well because they're taking ages and they, yeah. they should be quicker they should have planned ahead so that this situation wouldn't happen and now i'm affected yeah. Yeah. that's the reason i'm annoyed but no it's not but why does it make you lose um, your, your peace, your inner peace, your presence, and lose your ability to detach from um, that 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 narrative from the ego, and mm-hmm. that's that's the really interesting thing uh, to experiment with and to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because our automatic like default excuses is usually external. We blame the world, we blame others, we blame everything but ourselves, but it's. Mm-hmm trying to kind of at first be aware that that in itself is a pattern that you're running and that you needn't get caught up and believe in your own lies you know believe in your own excuses you know mm. and it's like well well then what is it what are you trying to say you know the ego kind of attacks like that you know if if it's ever confronted by someone else you know a, a close friend or a family saying you know oh maybe it's not the rest of the world maybe it's you but then just by that fact alone that it's coming from someone else the ego will attack you know mm. but if you encourage the practice of themselves just putting a pin in whatever moment triggers them just that practice will mean that they will start actually watching themselves. There's no request to try and find the answers. Mm. It's just putting a pin in it and acknowledging that you were triggered. And as long as you stop the default pattern of blaming the outside world or blaming external people, instead of Mm. automatically jumping to that, if you just go, okay, look, don't try and figure it out, don't try and blame, just acknowledge that you were triggered there. That's enough. And just do that for a while. And then once you've got so many pins in all these triggers, you're you're gonna start questioning, okay, what's what's going on? Like what you know, if mm. 
And if you then start to go, well, let's draw the dots, you know, let's draw lines, let's let's kind of um, <clears throat> see the common factors, you know, because then you start to weave a tapestry and that it's not all just isolated events, that there are similarities because you're connecting the dots. And then when you connect all the dots, you go, well, then what would have been your normal go-to excuses? What would have been the reasons for you to react to that? And it's like, well, in that in that context, the guy in front of me was being really slow and that irritated me. It's like, okay, all right, let's stop there. What about this instance? It's like, well, then it's the same. Like that, that woman was just being really like whatever and loud and talking on her phone and that annoyed me. It's like, okay, but what about this? And you start connecting all the dots and you realize that it happens all the time. So are you really allowing yourself to get annoyed at every single person around you, every instance? But you are still getting annoyed. They disappear. They will always be renewed by different instances, but they're all around the same kind of theme. They're all the same trigger points in you. You mm. are the commonality. Right. So then they they will start then, you know, realizing that for themselves. And that's the beginning of the journey. The yeah. Journey. And and there's that perverse need. I mean, it's not perverse from the ego's perspective to keep renewing that experience because that's what gives it fuel. It gives it its sense of self. And that's the challenge in terms of, I guess, the way I look at it in terms of the pin being put back in is effectively coming back to the present moment in those in those situations and and realizing that that, that someone doesn't have to be blamed. You know, like you said, there's this idea of the, blaming the external world. And um, and the, the external world is completely neutral. That's that's a, that's a beautiful thing. If it really doesn't care, <laughs> like the universe really doesn't care, it is completely in your mind. Um, and, and but then conversely, that doesn't mean that you have to then find blame internally. There is no blame to be to be uh, parcelled out here. There's no castigation that has to take place, right? Because the whole idea that there's blame is predicated on the idea that there's something wrong, and that's predicated on the idea that this situation or way of thinking or behavior is right or wrong. But as long as you, uh, but, but that's not something that features in, in, in the state of pure being or pure awareness or pure consciousness, because those concepts can't exist because they arise from the mind. And if you're being present, then the mind isn't really uh, being overactive in that regard. So it's, um, it's, it's getting, it's, it's eventually finding that, that, that place where there is no blame um, and for that reason, it's okay to say that, 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 that the external environment is, is not wrong. And that doesn't mean that I'm therefore wrong and have to take the slack of the blame. Yeah. Um, maybe just everything's neutral and it's just the way that, that the, the mind thinks of it. And there's a really great quote, which has always stuck with me, which on this subject, which is uh, from the book, which is that life isn't as serious as the mind makes it out to be. And, and I think that's just that, that that just really epitomizes what I'm trying to say yeah. uh, at this point. We we give everything meaning. We we make everything subjective. Without our definitions, without our um, perspectives, um, everything is just is. It, it just is. You know, all the outside world, it just is. Your inner self, it just is. 
But the moment that we label things, we define them, we, uh, yeah, we, we address them as such. We put them on a scale. We go, this is good, this is bad. This is up, this is down, this is black, this is white. And anywhere along that spectrum, as long as we place it there, that's then subjective. And so we, we did that so we can undo that. We can control that. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it ties really nicely with um, everything just is. It's, it's the power of now, you know, another one of his amazing books. So mm. then it's about being present and knowing that there is no past, there is no future. The only moment is now. And if you give everything meaning now, then that is your reality. Mm. If you accept everything for what it is, then that then is your reality. You know? And if you are wanting to react and get triggered by all these external um, uh, influences, then it's kind of like it's kind of like a dog barking at practically by. You know, it's, like, it's like a dog barking at what? Traffic or anything going by. Right. It's like, it's like the world will keep turning, but the dog is just reacting and like barking angrily at every car that goes by, every pedestrian that goes by, everything that goes by. It's like the dog's just constantly barking, like reacting and getting triggered and kind of like asserting its position. Um, mm. It's kind of like, if you go through life like that, like that dog just barking at everything, then, you know, as an observer, you might think, well, there's something wrong with that dog. Because the world isn't causing all, like each individual car, each individual person that's passing by that dog, they're not giving that dog grief. They're just doing their thing. That's, that's just the world. The world mm. will keep turning. It's a dog that has a problem with its own experience with the world. So then in that kind of metaphor, a lot of people, we are that dog. We just don't realize it. Mm. I think that's a great, that's a great metaphor. I really like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think maybe the last, one of the hardest barks to give up, maybe it's the last bark or one of the, the loudest barks is, is when there's a pre-existing belief system that you have structured your identity around um, you know so partic a particular interest to in me is religious type belief systems partly because of my own background and because of studying theology at university and things like that because um, that might be something worth exploring in another conversation but that's a whole infrastructure uh, foundation and superstructure which is uh, for some, if you shake it, shaking the core of their identity. And therefore they can accept everything that, 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 that you said and maybe we discussed to a point, um, but, but not maybe if it gets into that, 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 um, that area of kind of metaphysics, I guess. And, and I don't think it necessarily needs to, needs to conflict, conflict in, in any big ways. Um, but in some ways it does, because if, if we conceive of religion as being built upon certain stories, which are man-made stories, yeah. Yeah. then uh, and and them not being true, and things like concepts of sin and not and right and wrong, not really being true out there in the metaphysical reality, whatever that is, that's yeah. a big shift, and I think that that's a hard thing for for, for some to to give up in order to embrace uh, 
of what is effectively from the way I live it and read it and perceive it agnosticism uh, and, to, and to a great extent possibly even atheism um, which is the not the not knowing the fact that everything's neutral as you were saying and that there isn't some necessarily that we know of higher governing order that structures everything gives us our place and gives us our role and our title and our importance and our our little sticker that says I am this person and this is what I believe and this is why it matters um, but maybe that's for another another conversation yeah. Because I think we'll probably have to start wrapping up soon. Yeah, sure. Um, another thing that came to mind is um, I, everything pretty much is tied in together. Um, I one of my all-time favorite TED talks was by uh, Dr. Joe Bolte Taylor, and it's called uh, "My Stroke of Insight," and it's all about her experience as a brain scientist having a stroke she had a hemorrhage going on in her left hemisphere of her brain <clears throat> and uh, yeah she just she just um basically relives her story um which lasted many years because she went through lots of uh, surgery and healing and stuff like that and <clears throat> and restoration but the end note was so profound because through her Quite, I mean, she's an intellectual. She's a brain scientist. <clears throat> but um, her experience was summed up as pretty much the left and right hemispheres of the brain is very much like separate, only connected predominantly by the, the uh, I forgot. There's a cord that connects them and that allows them to reconcile their different perspectives. I can't remember the name of the cord. The cord. <laughs> Uh, the cerebral cortex, I think, is it? Anyway, basically, they're just saying the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere—they're very different. They 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 perceive different um, forms of reality, if you will. You know, the the right hemisphere is uh, very sensory and it's very creative, and it's like in in that experience because she had a hemorrhage in her, in her left hemisphere, um, her left hemisphere would just go down. Um, it would be inactive. And so the right hemisphere is her only uh, experience. And in that realm, in that experience, everything was one. She was formless. Um, all the atoms and molecules and the energies of everything um, was all one. And she felt incredibly expansive. And she affectionately, uh, affectionately refers to that as la-la land. But in that world, everything was... It was just filled with beautiful, beautiful people, and we're all, you know, one. Mm -hmm. uh, because there was just no form. She was formless. Her existence, her experience was without form. There was no past. There was no future. There was no baggage. There was no identity. There was no ego. Everything was just one and was. Wow. Without subjectivity. So in that experience, that's more akin to something you might refer to as like enlightenment or, you know, really at one with your consciousness. And then on the other side is the left hemisphere. And I, I strongly feel that our history has a lot to thank the left hemisphere for because our left hemisphere is linear. It, it, it's our memory banks of the past. It's our projection into the future. It solidifies us as forms. It gives us identity. 
the left hemisphere says I am. And as soon as it does that, it separates our existence, our experience, our reality, everything separate mm. from everything else. And that is predominantly where we live. Mm. So that's where the mechanisms of, of the brain that generate the, the, the ego as we experience it or are, are possessed yeah. by it that, that, that might, might arise from. Yeah, it's that's, that's interesting. It's mm. the realm of thought is in the left hemisphere. So not only are the concepts that we're talking about um, very meaningful and potentially impactful, we've also got to consider that we are just biological beings. If there are some aspects that we can um, tap into in our biology um, mm. that can facilitate the um, you know, mental conceptual ideas uh, that we're trying to explore, then maybe our experience will just be far greater than any um, uh, mental cognitive exploration. You know, right. like yeah. when people go on um, trips uh, using like spiritual drugs or something like that. You know, they get super high and they have some kind of trip and experience, and whatever they experience there might be above and beyond anything that they could have um you know logically mentally come up with mm. yeah, so then trying to break that down and make sense of it and utilize it to their preference mm. but that's another aspect it could be in our biology and if we are able to then like this multi-pronged approach kind of work with that and if we were able to control at will how we shift on that scale between the left and right hemisphere if we're able to just dial ourselves into our right hemisphere at will more and more then maybe that will facilitate our entire reality and then our perceptions off right yeah that that opens up a lot of doors into Kind of think the DIY psychotherapy that we're starting with with the book and the way that that kind of that kaleidoscope of consciousness experiencing rising above consciousness that can be delivered through synthetic uh, inputs to that end or synthetic ways to that end like drugs as you say and thinking about like shamanic experiences but then also organic ones as well which which I think referring to at the very end of what you just said in terms of say meditation and yoga and spiritual practices that get you to those heightened states of consciousness but are still part of this whole continuum starting with that first inner reflection um through whatever causes you to go down that route in our case or at least in my case the book itself and then but, and then there's a whole other uh, layer many 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 layers or overlays that can be applied through exploring that and going really deep into consciousness um, but as you said i think it reconciles this is one of the reasons it works so well for me in my life is that it reconciles perfectly with science there's nothing there's nothing uh faith-based about mm -hmm. what we're discussing it, it 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 is kind of linked and increasingly so as we learn about behavioral science and the way the brain works with, with those states so it'd be interesting to see yeah, whether, who knows, there might be other ways to get to that point. Um, yeah, but, yeah. 
but yeah that's but that's maybe one to there's a few things that maybe we should discuss on another call so things like Definitely. how it links into nirvana and uh, the states of consciousness as well as the pain body and things like free will which is an interesting one as well which also ties into science yeah yeah there's there's much to much to explore cool all right well we better call it a day then yeah all right this has been it's good been fun, it's been interesting I always like delving into these and just talking about them and kind of uh, like stirring it up in myself. It's always good. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's good because especially with something like this, which is so much about not being that analytical or intellectual about it in terms of the, the ultimate solution or, or uh, the, the underlying presence that's within us that we're focusing on. It's still, you, you still have that temptation. I still have that temptation to kind of, okay, let me kind of try to kind of philosophize over this and package it up in a little bit of a way that is intellectually stimulating, but hopefully not in a way that, uh, that, that, that takes me away from presence, but it's just an interesting thing to do while I am a human and have that, that yeah. instinct. Yeah, I'm very much of the opinion that there is no absolute. There is simply no absolute answer for anything everything is just a whole like cacophony of different experiences and realities and and the best way that we can just use it is just to try and identify it as best we can for ourselves that we're happy with be on the same page that we can communicate it about it and basically try and just use it to our preference but there is never an absolute it's like in science you know Science is amazing, but it's pretty much of the opinion that let's say this is fact until it's proven that it's not. Mm. It's not. It's not having this kind of arrogance like with um, religious uh, beliefs that this is it because it comes from God and this is it. Like there is no, <laughs> there is no way around it. That is the. Mm -hmm truth for all of time it always has always will be uh and and that is like straight away i'm like oh no matter what the context is i'm like oh no yeah. <laughs> that's that's quite some um uh arrogance <laughs> but that's also a great the great thing to explore in terms of if you're of the persuasion that god is created in the image of man and you go back to the main religions that are around today and their and their sources and genesis in in antiquity and uh, uh, kind of iron age tribes and things like that from the middle east then it's really interesting to get back to the core of it and think about well, how, how did these concepts of god and stories about god get get generated in the first place uh, from a kind of anthropological perspective and how we we shaped gods and why we shaped them in the way that we did and what does that tell yeah. us about ourselves but but yeah that's uh that's another another good one yeah 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 cool dude we better wrap it up yeah great talking to you mate yeah and uh we'll have a off uh, not offline but non-recording conversation about other things i'd rather record things because uh, a lot of golden nuggets can come from just everyday conversations especially when we've got like like-minded individuals like me and you who can go off on one and unveil things yeah, definitely. Cool, dude. All right. Well, I'll catch up with you soon. Yeah. Have a good day. Right. All right. Yeah. Take care.
Bye. Bye.